Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Karina Kilmore. Karina is a journalist who has written for publications in Australia, the US, the UK and New Zealand. And Karina has brought that experience to bear on her debut novel, which was shortlisted in the prestigious Victorian Premier's Literary Awards for an unpublished manuscript. Today, Karina joins me to discuss her debut, Where the Truth Lies. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and their ongoing connection to this land. Here on Final Draft, we remain committed to exploring the best of Australia's books, writing and literary culture, as featured on 2SER, whilst maintaining social distancing. So I'll be recording from home for a while, but I'm going to keep bringing you the best quality show that I can. If you're loving the show and you're finding yourself with lots more time to do some reading, why not share the reading adventures and the podcast with a friend? Now, on to where the truth lies. Chrissy O'Brien is an investigative journalist who's had to escape her hometown after becoming the centre of her own story. She's come to Melbourne to heal, to escape, perhaps to forget. She's landed a job at the Argus in a time of layoffs, and it's no one's best friend for the fact. When a puff piece profile interview turns dark, though, and a young woman dies, Chrissy decides to investigate whether her boss gives her the go-ahead or not. Join me as we discover Karina Kilmore's Where the Truth Lies. My name is Andrew Popel, and I'm joined in the studio by Karina Kilmore. Karina is a journalist with more than 30 years' experience writing for publications in Australia, the US, UK, and New Zealand. And Karina has just released her debut novel, Where the Truth Lies, was shortlisted in the prestigious Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript. She's joining me today to discuss Where the Truth Lies. Karina, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Andrew. Now, Chrissy O'Brien has come to Melbourne to heal, to escape, perhaps to forget. She's landed a job at the Argus in a time of layoffs and is no one's best friend for the fact when a puff piece profile interview turns dark and a young woman dies, Chrissy decides to investigate whether her bosses give her the go-ahead or not. You've crafted a tense thriller here that moves between Melbourne's docks and the Argus newsroom. And as we move deeper into the story that Chrissy is trying to uncover, I couldn't just I just couldn't escape the realization that so much of the great drama hinges on what amounts to industrial relations and workplace safety. These are topics that politicians regularly fail to sell us on, but here you've created this gripping story. Why is it for you so important that we keep an eye on the real people amidst all of the politicking? I grew up in a big um, political family in New Zealand, and uh, as part of that, I had a front row seat to all the big industrial relations disputes. Also, as a um, finance journalist, a business journalist, I also get to see that side of um, the big tribal union corporate divide from um, my own upbringing, so from the blue-collar side, and also as a finance journalist from the white-collar side. And so I wanted to bring this um, this dispute into just normal storytelling. I didn't want it to be only part of a news story or only part of a television broadcast. I want unions and business and, and the politics that goes with that to be part of our normal everyday storytelling. So I thought I'd base a story around that crime. Mm-hmm. you know. And as a business journalist for 30 years, 
I've been a multiple crime writer. I've written multiple crime stories, you know, business stories. We just need to look at the the banks and all the crimes that that have happened in the last few years. And unions too, you know, union thuggery, you know, um, unions, you know, calling the shots, blackmailing companies, you know, there's crimes on both sides. And I wanted to bring those two um, big, uh, tough issues together and have one woman, you know, an outsider from both worlds come in and and investigate both sides. Yeah, you create this really stark juxtaposition, I notice, as as Chrissy's moving through her investigation. On one page, we may see her going through pages of bland spreadsheets, and then on the next, she is talking to an informant who is fraught and, and panicked, not just at the person that they've lost, but fears for their own safety. And really, they're talking about the same thing at... It really brought home that the, these spreadsheets, these facts and figures that are dealt with in offices are people's lives and the way they move through those lives can be so depersonalised. Yeah, as a business journalist, I I automatically go to data and I analyse numbers and figures and I wanted to show Chrissy in her world looking at these deaths and these accidents and these terrible um, long-term effects on these workers, looking at them from a from a top-down point of view, from a clinical, you know, black and white type on a piece of paper when she's reading about somebody losing a limb or someone dying in an accident. I wanted to to both bring that home as a human story but also as a, as a distance business story as well. Yeah. So Chrissy has come to Melbourne from New Zealand and she's, she's landed in an environment that isn't quite welcoming to her because she's been hired at a time of layoffs. Now, to tell the story, you've revived the masthead of the Argus. Uh, it's a newspaper that closed in Melbourne in 1957. So as a population, we're moving increasingly into getting our news from digital platforms where we're not thinking about these these mastheads being, you know, printing presses and buildings that people actually work in. I wondered if this resurrection was more than just a sentimental plot device. Is is diversity in media and that shrinking pool of, of mastheads an issue? Yeah, I wanted to show that this is a world where if the Argus, which was one of Australia's, possibly if it was still going, Australia's oldest newspaper, mm. if the Argus hadn't closed down... Um, what the landscape would have been in Australia. You know, it would have this great, um, highly recognised newspaper, but also at the end of its physical life, at the end of its life of its tradition is going. Now it's turning to all the platforms that it needs to cover off. And I just, and in Melbourne, uh, the Argus building still exists. It's on the corner. It's just as it's described in the book. It's a beautiful old building. And I just wanted to repopulate that building as well. I wanted to put people back in there and get them working on the newspaper that had been part of Australia's history. Let's think about those people because you you have, I mean, obviously by necessity when you create a novel, you have to create the characters that fill it. But those hypothetical people are also the jobs that are being lost in newsrooms. And you, you discuss this. You show us a newsroom as that place of job cuts, of insecurity, too much work, not enough hands. Photographers are being replaced by citizen snappers and journos have to cover stories that might bring in advertising revenue rather than cover an issue that is perhaps more important. Chrissy is forced to start investigating the wharves and the story that she wants to follow on the sly because it doesn't quite have the profile to raise circulation, at least in terms of the powers that be. I wondered how these pressures actually impact, in your experience, 
which news gets coverage and does it impact how that news is told to the public? I think it does. I th- every day there's too much news. You know, Every day there are too many topics, too many stories, too many events to cover, especially when you're getting um, reducing your journalist staff. So you have to automatically prioritise. And that's always been a newspaper owner's privilege to prioritise the type of news that they want in their newspaper or on their broadcast or their radio station. And so every day, every morning, um, there's a huge, great big news list printed out and everyone will go through it one by one and decide what's a priority. Mm. And uh, I I don't know how... as an individual, I would struggle to make those decisions. It's a really hard job. And I feel for the uh, news editors who have to cut out some stories, you know, for the sake of others. So news, the fourth estate, it has such an important role in holding power to account. It, in a very big way, uh, supports but also, you know, challenges what happens in democracy where we have a small number of people Herald, controlling our lives. But it seems like, as what you're saying there is, uh, it also replicates that you have one or two people making decisions about what gets into the paper. That's a huge responsibility. Do you do you feel like it's something that is always done well? I think it's always done with good intention. I'm not a cynic, um, even in having worked in the media for 30 years and seeing a lot of change, I still think everyone still um, has a really good intention to get the information out. Um, I think the problem is is that now you just have one journalist writing one story for multiple platforms. So you're only having one voice. Uh, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a resources issue. We don't have three or four um business journalists, for example, writing the same business story. We have one journalist writing that story and sharing that across all the platforms. Is a consequence of, a consequence of that also what you depict in Where the Truth Lies, where you have a story and at the very beginning, Chrissy knows something's up and she wants to pursue that story. And it's really not until the story builds. And in this, t- in this case, the story building is people dying before coverage happens. That that seems like a, a horrible consequence and Chrissy feels the full impact of this. Yeah, that's exactly what happens, unfortunately. We've got several cases just recently of domestic violence. Domestic violence is not new. Mm. Domestic violence has been killing women and children for decades. But because we've had a high-profile death recently, it's suddenly become news again. Mm. And that's a that's a sadness within our society that we wait for those big events before our news editors and news owners decide to make that a big issue again. Mm. And in the and then when that drops off it goes back into the distance, you know, and people forget about it again. There's just a it, there's not enough profit to be made from keeping a story going when it's not holding interest. I don't know if it doesn't hold interest. Uh, I wonder sometimes about the role of a news organisation, whether we only produce news that um, earns revenue. You know, that really worries me that those sort of decisions are made at a high level and whether 
And in that case, we have to um, discard news, which is newsworthy for its own sake, but doesn't necessarily attract an advertiser or a sponsor or or clicks on the website. You know, that that's the sort of issue that news editors have to grapple with every day. Mm-hmm. And as a journalist, you don't have a direct input in that. You are, really are just a foot soldier. You know, you're going out there, you're finding the stories, you're writing them and reporting them, and you don't get to say where that gets placed in a newspaper. And I show that with Chrissy in the in the novel where she's got a really good story but her news editor doesn't see it that way. And so he downgrades it and he relegate you know, cuts it and relegates it to a small piece, or not at all, gets mm. cut completely. Now Chrissy joins the Argus after an established career in New Zealand, a career that she's had to leave behind. And it's a past that she wants to keep hidden from her colleagues. I'm not going to say any more. I want people to discover this. But it highlights another aspect of the newsroom, which is just this accepted level of of stress, of overwork, even abuse that workers face. And through this, Chrissy is trying to cope with these severe panic attacks, her deteriorating mental health. Why was this part of Chrissy's story important to you? And it's told in this incredibly evocative way. I can tell that it was something you really cared about. I loved um, throwing Chrissy in to the deep end. I love throwing her into the middle of uh, the war of a man's world, into the middle of the media, which is still a man's world. And I love the fact that she was going around hunting out people's stories and finding their secrets and at the same time wanting to keep her own secrets hidden. Mm. I wanted her to have um I wanted her to have a backstory and I won't go into it either because <laughs> it's a secret. Dis- yeah, that's what people discover. Yeah, it. that's right. But but I needed her to have um, more than just her drive for work mm. and I needed her backstory to be the driver for her work because being a journalist is really tough. Um it it destroys your life in a lot of ways, you know, mm. it um, it takes away some of your soul, the things that you have to see, mm. the people you have to deal with. Um, and I wanted to keep the human side to Chrissy within that, mm. not just be an observer to this destruction and, um, you know, and, and the bad news. I wanted her to have this background story where no matter how hard and tough she is at work, the readers will know um, she's got her own thing going on. It struck me, no, I don't have an experience of the newsroom like, you do, but it struck me that it would be the sort of place with a what we might call a blokey attitude of you just get on with it, you don't dwell. Um, mental health would be the sort of term that would be scoffed at, and uh, if you can't keep up, well, then you get out. Is that something that you feel needs to change, or is the newsroom sort of one of those intractable places where people there will always be someone who'll do the job? I think the whole world has to change its attitude about mental health. Mm. I'm not sure that the newsroom is a good place to start, <laughs> and I don't know that it will be possible. Mm. It very much is um, a case of um, pull your bootstraps up and get on with it, male or female. Mm. Um, I don't I don't know if there's any other way to do that. You have to be tough. You mm. have to uh, put everything else aside. You have to listen. Listening is the biggest issue. That's where you start as a journalist. You start by listening. You don't start by writing. And so you have to listen to people's stories. And that's the hardest thing because you, you, you have to listen. You have to take it inside you to understand it. 
Yeah, there's this really interesting, I guess, discussion around these roles we play and the way we occupy these roles that I've heard, which kind of suggests that as women for the, the bulk of the, the nine, uh, sorry, the 20th and now into the 21st century entered roles that were, were sort of coded as male, they've had to take on these attributes. And Chrissy in the newsroom seems like a perfect example of that. And perhaps the place to start is because it seems that men have never been, had the pressure put on them to take on those opposite attributes that might actually open up space for mental health. Yeah. Again, it, you would know better than I if the newsroom is the uh, the best place for that to happen. But uh, that's that really struck me, though, that Chrissy has to perform in a certain way to fit into that space and nobody else is going to soften their stance for her. She has to harden hers for them. I think she's hardening her stance for herself as well. Mm. She's really tough on herself. Mm. She's really hard on herself. But in a newsroom environment, you, you have to be hard, whoever you are, male or female. I think women in who survive in newsrooms, and I've, I'm a survivor of 30 years, <laughs> um, women who survive in newsrooms have to do double duty. You know, I've had a family and a, um, you know, run a household as well. Mm. You know, most men haven't had to do that as well. I've had to ha- take career breaks and then come back and reestablish myself each time. And that's really hard to do, but I've had to do it and I've done it. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, most women who survive newsrooms are, you know, three, four, five, ten times tougher than than any male colleague they, that they've worked with. Mm-hmm. Now, somewhere in all of this lies the truth. Chrissy knows she's onto a story and it's a story that perhaps would remain hidden but for her investigation. Now, I mean, if we think back sort of like 10 years ago, we had the Arab Spring and the world saw the power of digital platforms being leveraged for citizen journalism. But now that seems to have kind of descended into our current era of of trust no one. Everyone's got an agenda. Everyone's going to tell you what they want you to believe. Mm. What role does the fourth estate still have with its resources being stripped, with uh, the, the cutbacks and the increasing pressure on people? in holding the powerful to account in uncovering these truths as Chrissy seeks to do? The decline, or I think it's a decline, the decline of media is a great sadness for me and people have seen it as a um, almost like an anti-journalist movement. You know, they blame journalists for not telling the truth. They blame journalists for fake news. Um, they blame journalists for um, skewing the truth. It's not journalists who do that. It's it's media owners who do that. And so with all the um, publication restrictions and um, excuses for excuses of um, national security coming in and blocking media, I think voters haven't realised just what that means for them. They see it as a punishment to those fake news people, you know, the, the bad journalists, but it's actually a punishment to society. If we don't have a platform to um, tell the truth, then we all lose. We never find out what, what the truth is. Mm. Social media is um, a good but dangerous way of getting news across. Anyone can self-publish anything. Nothing is fact-checked. No one is held accountable. Mm. Uh, sometimes that can be good because that's sometimes that... Y- you can get the truth out that someone else wouldn't publish. But most of the time it appears to be uh, fake news and, you know, 
it's hijacked. The social media platforms are hijacked by people with agendas. And that's really hard, especially for the young generation to know how to fact check that or what, what is a good source, what is a bad source. They don't know. I've got an um, 18 year old daughter. She has only ever grown up um, in a world with social media. She has no reference point before social media. So everything she, that she follows, she thinks is true. Mm-hmm even though she has a mother who tells her it's not. <laughs> but she, that's not within her peer group. They, they mm. don't do that. So there's just that, that failure to understand w- that the media is not just an, an organisation. A media is individuals who, who have a role to play and that that role has traditionally been to cast light on the things that perhaps the powerful don't want us to see. That, that's my um, understanding too. Mm. I think that is the role of the media is to, is to shine light on things that mm. people don't want you to see. Yeah. yeah, that's the most important role and that's the, that is where the media has been shut down the most. Mm. Yeah. I am speaking with Karina Kilmore and we're discussing where the truth lies. It is an absolutely fascinating look at that role of the media and one individual's reporter, one individual reporter's quest to uncover a really uh, shocking truth. Karina, thank you so much for this opportunity to, I, I guess, call on your experience to help us understand this amazing book that you've, you've given us. Thank you, Andrew. That's it for this great conversation with Karina Kilmore. Karina's latest novel is Where the Truth Lies, and it's out now through Simon & Schuster. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing, and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 ser And click subscribe in your podcast app to get new Great Conversations every week. My name is Andrew Popel, and I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft.